we all know that politics so often becomes a dirty game. There is the corrupting influence of money. There is the going negative. There are the broken promises, the selling out, the betrayal, the hypocrisy. And yet, at the same time, we have to recognize that politics also usually involves ideals, that people choose what side they're on in the faiths that they are standing with the side that stands for the good, the more virtuous, the side driven by ideals whose outcomes will prove most beneficial to society. That is why you and I and all of us choose the side we're on. We think that we are standing with the righteous. Well, we have decided tonight to test one side of that equation because we think it has the makings of a great debate. Let's go for it. Yes or no to this statement. Liberals hold the moral high ground. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan, and I stand between two teams of two, experts on the topic, passionate from their positions, who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience here in New York votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is liberals hold the moral high ground. Let's meet the team arguing first for the motion, starting with, ladies and gentlemen, Howard Dean. Howard, welcome. You are the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. You are six-term governor of Vermont. We want to put a question to you. We're going to actually put it to all of the panelists tonight. Just in two or three sentences, for you, tell us what is America's defining virtue. There are three. Uh, The first is hope. The second is equality. And the third is the rule of law. Thank you, Howard Dean. We got a little bit of an insight to you. And can you tell us, please, who your partner is? My wonderful partner is Melissa Harris-Perry. Ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Melissa Harris-Perry, welcome to the first time for Intelligence Squared U.S. You are the Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University, founding director of the Anna Julia Cooper Center. And the same question to you. uh, What would you say is America's defining virtue? America's defining virtue is that despite entrenched racial and gender inequality, This place has been home to generations of women of color whose very lives embody the greatest aspirations the country has set out for itself. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. And now the team arguing against the motion, please welcome David Brooks. David Brooks, uh, you're an op-ed columnist for The New York Times. You have been since 2003. Uh, Like Howard Dean, you have debated with us before, so welcome back yet again. Uh, And the question to you, what do you consider America's defining virtue? Well, in 2015, I wrote a book saying humility um, was the most important in defining virtue. (laughs) And then um, the 2016 election happened, and I figured, well, that worked. That was good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, David Brooks, and please tell us who your partner is. Uh, The greatest political philosopher in the history of the world, Robbie George. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Robert George. Robert, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, You are the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program at Princeton. Uh, That's a university in New Jersey. Um, And Robert, what, what would you say is America's defining virtue? E pluribus unum. For many, one. We do not share a um, common religion. We do not share a common ethnicity. We're many religions. We're many races. We're many ethnicities. But from that, we have become one people. Despite our many differences, we're one people. We've been able to maintain civic friendship and sustain an experiment in ordered liberty that was unknown prior to the American founding. Thank you, Robbie George. And the team arguing against the motion, all four debaters giving us a sense of their core values. 
Now we move on to round one. Round one are composed of opening statements from each debater in turn. Up first, arguing for the motion, liberals hold the moral high ground. Melissa Harris-Perry, she is Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University, making her way to the part of the floor we are calling the Intelligence Square. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Melissa Harris-Perry. Good evening. Um, I want to start by saying that obviously it's a bit of a difficult day to make the case that liberals hold the moral high ground. Uh, it, is a, it is a week when obviously Congressman Conyers had to resign, when Senator Franken today resigned. Um, it is important that in this case, in all cases of this kind, Individuals cannot be held as the standard for any particular ideological, policy, or partisan worldview. It has been true historically and will continue to be true that the character affiliated with liberal persons or conservative persons may be inadequate. That is not our argument. In fact, Instead, what we will argue is that the guiding frameworks, choices, beliefs, public policies, and historical trajectories and outcomes of liberalism with a capital L lead us as a nation to more moral outcomes when the folks who are in charge are people who understand themselves to be liberals. Obviously, this gets me to the hardest part. What do I mean when I say moral? What I want to make a claim of in my limited time remaining is that we actually share, as a nation, a civic religion that is laid out by our framers as an aspirational morality, that it is instantiated in America's founding document, the Declaration of Independence. The author and signatories of the Declaration of Independence in 1776 tell us that in writing and signing this document, they are telling the world what American morality is. And here is what they say. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created and equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among persons deriving their just powers from consent of the governed. Can you imagine anything less self-evident on the Monticello Mountain in 1776? It is an aspirational document, but a moral one for certain. So we take this as the standard of American civic morality by which both liberalism and conservatism must be judged. If you claim to be moral, then over time and on the whole, your ideological approach must demonstrate empirically that it provides for human freedom, meaningful equality, the cultivation of human flourishing, and substantive popular governance. Dr. Dean and I have no doubt 
that we will be able to demonstrate over the course of this evening empirically that those persons who understand themselves as liberal with a capital L consistently occupy the moral high ground. Because as Rosa Parks says, I would like to be remembered as a person who wanted to be free so others would also be free. The expansion through popular governance of the moral high ground through the American founding documents. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa Harris-Perry. And the motion again, liberals hold the moral high ground. Our next debater will be speaking against the motion. He's David Brooks, op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Ladies and gentlemen, David Brooks. Uh, First, I want to thank uh, St. Howard and St. Melissa for coming down from their moral high ground (laughs) to the ground the rest of us. Um, occupy. I was always wondering, how do they get down from something so lofty? Is there like a fireman's pole or an escalator? It turns out it was amazing how they arrived. They were actually escorted down by cherubs. They just sort of floated down, people throwing Noam Chomsky essays on the floor. It's amazing. Now, so I guess I thought this was a strange resolution. Uh, So it has to do with moral behavior. Somebody has a higher moral ground than other. So are liberals, do they behave better than conservatives? Well, half my friends are liberals and half are conservatives. I don't think the liberals are that much better. If you look at the data, conservatives, conservative households give about 30% more to charity. They donate blood more. They volunteer more. Uh, red states give about twice as much charity as blue states. So it's not obvious to me that liberals are better. Now, I confess, I happen to think politics is generally a competition between partial truths. Most great issues are competing goods. Security versus freedom, equality versus achievement, diversity versus cohesion. And sometimes liberals seem to me a little better. On civil rights, on feminism, liberals are a little better. I think the conservatives, we had a pretty good 1980s. I think defeating communism was a great moral good. Spreading capitalism to Asia was a moral good. I think we, had a, we on some issues, were probably a little better. But the core truth is we need each other to balance each other out. I need you to correct from my excesses, you need me to correct from yours. And we have to do that from equal standing, not from you on high, down to us, down low. The claim of this resolution is that liberals as people are morally superior to Robbie and me, and the rest of those who go by the label conservatism. In my case, that could be. I'm a pretty flawed person. But how would you know based on a label? And I fundamentally think that's... a probably a bit of a pernicious way to think. Uh, If you think you're superior to me, and you come from a moral high ground, it's pretty hard for us to have a conversation. If you think you're morally superior to conservatives, well, the conservatives will act with angry resentment. And a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because they thought a bunch of tenured radicals along the coast thought they were morally superior to them. And so if you want the kind of politics we have today, think you're morally superior to the, the other side. And then the final thing I'd say is that we're not in 1994 anymore. Politics is no longer really about big government versus small government. That was the debate we had for a long time. We're at a different moment in political history. And what we're facing around the world is the threat of neither liberalism or conservatism, but a sort of global populism. And I've spent time with Steve Bannon. What strikes me about Bannon is that he has a coherent story to tell. He has a a set of convictions that he totally believes in. It's like being with Trotsky in 1905. And it's kind of impressive. I don't agree with it. But what strikes me is that he's the Bolsheviks and we're the Mensheviks. Those of us on right and left 
We have gone so long in defending the democratic liberal order that conservatives and liberals both share, we've forgotten how to defend it against its enemies. And frankly, I'm going to spend a lot of the next years trying to work with anybody I can to find what is the story we jointly tell against the populists. That's the challenge of the moment. How can we rely both our sides so despite our disagreements, we actually do agree on a lot of foundation within which we have civilized debate. And if you think you're on the moral high ground, morally superior to us, we can't do that. And Steve Bannon has a divided enemy, and Steve Bannon will win. Thank you. Thank you, David Brooks. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Liberals Hold the Moral High Ground. You have heard from the first two debaters, and now on to the third, here making his way to the Intelligence Square, Howard Dean. He is former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Dean. Well, David is a sophisticated writer and a sophisticated arguer, and he posed a question that is not up for debate tonight. (laughs) He is quite correct. If liberals take the position that we are morally superior, then we will alienate those people who we seek to elevate. This is not a debate about who is infallible. Liberals often spend too much money. Sometimes liberals do have a, a, want a government that's too big. And it is also true that many of us find ourselves being condescending to those we oppose. And those are all things we shouldn't do. But what we cannot do in order to make peace is to cede an ounce of ground on the notion that all people are created equal, that equal opportunity is fundamental for every single American, including people of color and women in this country, and that we have principles that cannot be abrogated. I'm going to argue tonight that those principles are the high ground. Now, it does not matter what we say. What we say is clever, it's sophisticated, it's funny, it's amusing. It matters what we do. And I agree with my partner, Melissa, that we're not talking about individuals. Roy Moore's behavior is not a demonstration that conservatives have the low ground. But the fact that half the people in Alabama are willing to vote for him is of deep concerns, given that they are now weighing whether it is appropriate to vote for a candidate who is alleged to have molested a 14-year-old and a whole series of 16- and 17-year-olds in order to preserve some other value that they believe is important. I would argue that the people who are making that decision are abandoning their own morals. This tax bill is an abomination. Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, did Jesus think that rich men were all terrible? No, I don't think he did. What he thought was that those people who have power, and money is power, have an easier time deluding themselves to believe that they are morally superior than ordinary people who have to get up and work for a living every single day. And the people who are benefiting from that tax bill are the people who already have 
more money than they ever will need in the rest of their lives, and the people who are harmed are children whose insurance program is going to be taken away, are graduate students who are now going to be taxed on income that they never even see because it's tuition money that they don't actually get. It matters not what we say. It matters what we do. And what conservatives are doing to this country now is an outrage. I think that Ronald Reagan did do a good thing by helping to defeat communism. I think that it does matter what we do abroad. And I have actually sided with Republicans on some issues. Because we do not have all the wisdom. I think charter schools are a good thing if they're good. I think we should listen to everybody and contribute. But I think the core philosophy of who we are determines who has the high ground. And I believe that's liberals. Thank you, Howard Dean. The motion again, liberals hold the moral high ground. And our final debater to argue against the motion, Robert George. He is McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert George. Uh, the speech that uh, Governor Dean just gave the people, uh, the conservatives of uh, uh, Alabama, uh, I want to endorse. The end does not justify the means. If you try to defend your values by sacrificing other important moral principles, you lead your nation to the chaos road. But I need to point out that I made precisely the same argument to my liberal colleagues at Princeton in 1997, 1998, and 1999, when the women were being abused, and I was told that there are values that are so important, we have to look aside from Bill Clinton's behavior. So neither side can claim the high ground on that issue. Neither side today has the moral high ground, and that's because both sides have permitted themselves to descend into dogmatism, ideological tribalism, contempt for people who disagree with them, and that is fraying, my friends, the bonds of civic friendship that a nation depends on when it is a nation that is not built on blood and soil, a commonality of ethnicity or religion, that has to rely on a common commitment to the proposition that all men are created equal by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But we fray and we abuse and we put in grave jeopardy the bonds of civic friendship when we refuse to recognize that there may be something valuable, useful in what the other side says. Both the conservatives and the progressives or liberals have had their glory moments. The liberals were in the leadership position. They were in the vanguard of the civil rights movement. But we go back just a few years earlier and it was the progressives on the wrong side of the eugenics movement with a few conservatives, mostly Catholic conservatives, religious conservatives, saying, no, this is an abomination. We mustn't go there. So both views have had their glory moments, and both have had their moments of shame. And you know what that should tell us? It should remind us that we are human beings who are fallible. We can be wrong We don't know that we're not wrong about even our most cherished, deepest held, even identity-forming values. And we won't know unless we're willing to engage those on the other side as equal partners in debate, willing to learn something from them. Progressives want to use the power of government to protect the weakest, the most vulnerable, from misfortune 
or the depredations worked against them by the powerful. That's a good impulse. Conservatives should endorse and embrace it. Conservatives care deeply about the integrity of the institutions of civil society that can be enervated and undermined by big government. They know that markets have lifted millions of people out of poverty across the world, in places like India, for example. They know that the market needs to be properly regulated, but they know that when government steps in to take over everything, what you get is the alliance of big government and big business that we know is crony capitalism. And the crony capitalism we have today is the work of both conservatives and liberals. No one has taken up the challenge of undoing it. And when someone does, then that person is entitled to claim the moral high ground. Thank you, Robert George. And that, again, is our motion. Liberals hold the moral high ground. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Now we move on to round two. And round two are where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, uh, members of our live audience here in New York. Our motion is liberals hold the moral high ground. We've heard Howard Dean and Melissa Harris-Perry present their argument. Melissa Harris-Perry started out by saying this is not about individuals. This is not about individuals who are immoral. Rather, it is about an argument in favor of a set of values and precepts that lead to more moral outcomes as they are pursued. Uh, your opponents on the other side, um, Robert George and David Brooks, maybe surprised the audience by not arguing that conservative ideas are morally superior, merely that nobody really has a monopoly on moral superiority. So it is a very tangled web we have woven here. We want to look at some of these competing ideas as they work through a number of issues that are familiar to all of us. I will throw some of them out there. Perhaps same-sex marriage, perhaps uh, abortion, issues where we do think that there's a conflict of values. I think, Melissa Harris-Perry, you came in with a presentation that is most on target for the kind of conversation that we want to have, where you, you talked about liberal precepts supporting key aspects of the Declaration of Independence. You went through several of them. I just want to pick on one of them. Have you talk a little bit more about what you mean and then hear, have your opponents respond. It's human freedom. What does it mean to pursue human freedom? The floor is yours. Sure. I want to respond a, um, a bit to, um, as um, Dr. Dean was saying, obviously David Brooks is, a, is brilliant in his reframing. Now liberals aren't allowed to say we occupy a moral high ground and folks cower and say, well, no, now we all have to talk to each other because here's what I want to say. Of course we do. I'm a college professor. We all have to talk to each other. And in fact, engagement in the deliberative democratic process is among the most important things that we will ever do, especially around the cultivation of human flourishing. But we have empirical evidence that, for example, when Republicans control state legislatures, especially recently, we have seen a shrinking of the capacity for popular governance because we have seen the imposition of voting rights restrictions that make it harder for people to vote. We know that across 35 years of Republican presidencies, African-American unemployment went up by a net of 13.7 percentage points, and across 22 years of Democratic presidencies, it fell by 8 percentage points. I see that as being about both the cultivation of human flourishing and about meaningful equality, because when people have employment, they have the capacity to move towards greater equality. Melissa, let me ask you, what... What conservative values do you think are obstacles to the outcome that you were just talking about? 
What conservative values? Yes. What conservative? What can? What well, aspect of conservative these are- practices? I actually think conservatives also value human freedom, equality, flourish. My, my argument is that these are American values, and the question is which group actually gets us there. David, you want well, to- let me tell you why I became conservative. I was a socialist uh, through college. I, you can watch on PBS. I debated Milton Friedman um, and lost. Um, <laughs> And, but then I became a police reporter in Chicago, and I covered the Robert Taylor homes and the Cabrini Green, some of the bad neighborhoods in, in Chicago in the 1980s. Uh, and what I saw was well-intentioned social programs that destroyed neighborhoods. And it taught me a, a great truth that the world is really complicated, and we have to be very careful about how we mess with it. And so I became a conservative because I basically believe that change should be incremental, gradual, and slow, and we shouldn't be arrogant in the use of power. There's freedom from restraint, which is fine, but there's also the freedom to do things. You've got to chain yourself to the piano to have the freedom to really play. You have to have covenantal relationships in your life to have the freedom to graduate from high school, to graduate from college. And conservatives pay a lot of attention to those covenantal relationships. And if we're going to get kids out of poverty, we need Medicaid. We need more spending on earned income tax credit. That's what progressives bring to the table. But we also need covenantal relationships and neighborhoods and civic institutions. And that's what conservatives really pay attention to and bring to the table. I want to move on to the question of same-sex marriage, where, Robbie George, you have taken a position uh, that it's morally not correct. Your opponents obviously take a different position. What are the competing goods here? Uh, My own personal view is that marriage is the relationship, historically, the relationship that unites a man and woman as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children born of that union, conferring on the children the benefit of being brought up in the committed bond, the marital love of the two people whose coming together as a biological unit gave them the gift of life and conferring upon them the additional benefit of being brought up with both maternal and paternal influences and care. Not every family will have a father and mother, uh, but in my view, that should be the ideal. Now, I, I would, if, if, if I had time, I'd have to defend every single one of those propositions because they would all come under attack, especially from an audience where where we are. I mean, it's very easy to lose a debate over same-sex okay, marriage but, in New but York. We don't, need to be attacking your, we don't need to be attacking your personal views on it, we, but we want to hear from your opponents why the contrary represents the moral high ground. Let me take it to Melissa Harris-Perry. No, I, I would I'm just sorry, say, you, because you want to, you want to um, separate um, religious marriage from state marriage, and so I think that that is a fine um, definition within any given religious context, and I believe that um, religions ought to be able to make choices about um, how they define marriage within the context of their faith, but that the state should have um, should not make those distinctions. It's, can I, sure, can I jump in? Just yeah. I, I fervently support gay marriage, but it's interesting how different the language I would use. I, I believe in marriage because I think it's the noblest institution in which people give self-sacrificial love to each other. And so I support gay marriage because I think God made gay people as he made straight people. He wanted all people to be within marriages if they want to be within a marriage. This is emblematic of why I actually think we have the high ground on this side of the table. This is about fear, a change of institutions that is uncomfortable for people. We understand, when we have our own fears, we're human beings. I mean, we're not different than you are. But I believe this is about the future and about hope, not about fear and hoping that nothing changes. Look, not only is marriage changing, sexuality is changing. We're undergoing right now all this business with 
the sexual you know, abuses and stuff. This has been going on for a long time. This has been going on, certainly when I was in college, it was going on. I have a feeling it was going on a hell of a lot longer than that. People are speaking up. Why? Because we're renegotiating gender roles in our society. They're speaking up on campus. They're speaking up here. It, it's happening in the, in the season. Okay, let me, let me take, well, let me take know, that back to, to Robert George, because again, what I think I hear Howard Dean saying is that the, the, the moral superiority of the liberal position on this one comes from their flexibility, their nimbleness, their keeping up in a dynamic way with the way that the world is changing, as opposed to, I suppose he's implying, um, um, holding on to tradition. Yeah, uh, my argument has never been an argument from tradition. If you read my books, you'll find that there's no appeal to tradition or anything like that. It's not an argument from fear. Uh, We have to face the question, even my dear friend David has to face the question, what is marriage? We can't get around that question. We can't have an assumption that marriage is just a form of sexual romantic companionship or domestic partnership. On the sexual revolution more generally and on what's going on now, now maybe people think you can exonerate the sexual revolution You may think that Hugh Hefner or Alfred Kinsey and their so-called work have nothing to do with what we have witnessed today. But if so, I'd ask you to keep an open mind. Melissa, do you want to finish on this point? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to audience questions then. And I'll take one right down the front here. Hi, my name's Melody. When I look at this motion, I, I incorporate the word currently, as in liberals currently occupy the moral high ground. It's just hard for me not to do that. You make several great arguments that incorporate the history of conservatism and the history of liberalism. If you're looking at today's group of conservatives in Washington, D.C., versus today's group of liberals in Washington, D.C., do you still argue against the motion? You know, both Robbie and I are extremely critical of Donald Trump, extremely critical. I, and I we probably are of Judge Moore. And what's, it's, so this, this issue is complicated by the fact that over the past 18 months, a, a Republican Party has been hijacked by a reactionary party. And reactionary is not conservative. And that the people I grew up with who read National Review, read the Weekly Standard commentary, William F. Buckley, Edmund Burke, were appalled. We're appalled. But that, I just say that doesn't, that doesn't vitiate against the basic concept of conservative human beings or conservative philosophy. I, I both appreciate and believe that you are appalled by what is happening. I also think that, um, that the party is culpable. The two of you, <laughs> you were not personally responsible, but it's not acceptable to just say, oh, man, that, well, that's not us any more than it is for liberals to do that um, when really horrifying things happen in the Democratic Party. And so, I'm sorry, Republicans don't get to wash their hands of this Republican Party. Uh, I I just don't think it can be uh, handled in that kind of a simplistic way. Um, He didn't get my vote. Uh, I warned that he was morally unfit to be president. I refused to meet with him when uh, he was courting uh, conservatives. And yet, let's face the fact that he carried counties and regions and states that Barack Obama carried. And if there is responsibility and liability, it rests with both parties and with both ideological movements. I'm John Donvan. Still to come, more questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate 
on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your host. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, liberals hold the moral high ground. Uh, sir. Uh, uh, my name is uh, John Haidt from New York University. Um, thank you. Rock star that. Uh, so the, the word liberal is in, the, in the, the, the title of the resolution, and we talk about liberal democracy, we talk about liberal arts universities. One of the most shocking and horrifying things of this year for many of us has been the explosion of illiberalism on both sides. Um, people on each side are so focused on, the, on the left people are so focused on actual Nazis and, and white supremacists, and people on the right are so focused on illiberalism on campus, and people want to shout down speakers and tell people what they can say and what they can wear. So I was wondering if on both sides, you could talk about how your side is liberal in the more classical sense or connects to the liberal tradition, and if you could sort of clearly mark what's the element of your side that is illiberal and and that you might or might not want to distance yourself from. Howard, do you want to take? It's a a fascinating and very difficult question. Uh, In fact, (laughs) neo-Nazis exist, and they were organized the riot in Charlotte that caused a death. So... The question is, how do you stand up against that? Are there people who get shouted down who shouldn't? Yes. Are there people who get shouted down who should? Yes. If you are Milo Yiannopoulos or you are Ann Coulter and your only reason for going on campus is to insult people, identify every undocumented person so they get kicked out of school, there is no academic value for that whatsoever. I do not think that the First Amendment requires Berkeley to spend a million dollars on security so a provocateur can come and say whatever they want. And this was handled very well. The first time in Middlebury handled it terribly. Charles Murray should not have been shouted down. The second time, James O'Keefe came. The university wouldn't permit him to come. He lied about how he was going to get there. He rented a hall. A few people came, and there was no incident because who wants to listen to a felon talk about nonsense and provoke people. So this is a, it's, it's really a tough argument. Of course we support the First Amendment. But a lot of, the, a lot of there's a fair amount of posturing going around, on around free speech and illiberalism. Uh, it's, it's a tough road to hoe. We okay. need the First Amendment, but it is not absolute. Well, I'll tell course. you what the danger is for those of us on the conservative side. It's what goes by the label the alt-right, uh, a movement that seeks to replace, uh, at least in its more extreme manifestations, seeks to replace the old-fashioned American conservatism, which was really a form of liberalism that cared about limited government, civil society, e pluribus unum, to replace that with ethno-nationalism, with the blood-and-soil conservatism of old Europe. And people like David and myself are fighting as hard as we possibly can about that. I think the challenge for those on uh, uh, the governor and Melissa's side is that where progressives have control of institutions, as in academia, where there are very few people like David and uh, myself, it is not going well for the cause of old-fashioned liberalism. Speech is being shut down. Uh, People are being frozen out. There is a lack of viewpoint diversity that cannot simply be the fruit of the explanations that are often offered. Conservatives are too dumb to be professors. Conservatives don't go into academia because they love money, so they go into banking uh, instead. That can't account for it. There's a historic prejudice there and an unwillingness to let people be heard. Mike's coming down from your left. So, hello, my name is Ishan, and I have a question for you. So, over the years, there have been many social aid programs for lower-income households and lower-income neighborhoods across America. 
But many studies show that they don't work or they keep lower-income families in lower-income households, like welfare, pro- welfare programs, um, so social safety net, or refusal to implement school choice. So how do you feel about this? Uh, I'll let all sides take that. That's a pretty good question. Um, Howard or Melissa? Who would, Howard? Um, you know, I, this, is, this is where I agree with the opposite side. Pure liberalism all the time doesn't work any more than pure conservatism all the time. I'm a proponent of charter schools. I'm against school choice because I think it'll lead to the resegregation of America. I'm against for-profits because they, turn a, they do a terrible job, usually worse than the public schools. So there are good ideas on the right and the left, and both sides make mistakes. This is not an argument about either side being perfect. This is an argument about right now who has the high ground, and I think we do. Other side? Uh, well, uh, apart from the final sentence that <laughs> the governor uttered, uh, I only really? disagree okay. with what he said right Fair there enough. on the question of school choice. I'm for it. Uh, And I'm for it precisely because I think it would be a great advantage to the least well-off people, including many minority people, who are deprived opportunities that people who have more money have to send their children to truly excellent schools. So I would want to see school choice expanded. But, Ishan, in response to your broader question, uh, I I think it's very important for conservatives, and I I detect a kind of hint of conservatism in your question. I think it's very important for us... Oh, you're going to to Princeton now, kid. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) My car. I think it's it's very important to to remember my point about not being dogmatic. The, the, The social safety net really is necessary. There are some things that civil society cannot do, and government needs to be there, especially when there are emergencies, especially where people are going to fall through the cracks and there aren't institutions of civil society there to rescue them. But wherever we can do by private initiative what needs to be done, we shouldn't resort to the public sector for that. We shouldn't grow the government because that will freeze out freedom. But also remember that there has to be a safety net. Kid, good question. Uh, Can can I just say? Yeah. So... So in many ways, I agree with you that targeted programs that have an association with poverty um, in and of themselves tend to be really problematic in our country, in part because we also tend to associate poverty with race, and there is a great deal of racism in our country. So here's one of the ways to get around that. One, one of the things that liberals tend to do that... Um, raises all boats that isn't about programming is do things like, for example, raise the minimum wage. When you raise minimum wage, people work and they earn more, and in earning a living wage and having health care, for example, then it's not a program. It's the capacity for people to earn a living wage and provide health care for their families and their communities that doesn't require a program, for example. It also um, uh, Democrats and liberals tend to do things like step in and ensure that banks are not um, redlining and um, failing to uh, loan in appropriate ways to um, women and to families with children and to folks who are um, African-American or to people who don't have certain kinds of documentation. And all of those things ensure that, in fact, people can actually buy homes. Sometimes we think of like liberalism as just being about programs, and I would think that that is far too limiting. Part of what we're talking about when we're talking about liberalism is also fairness for all communities that isn't just about letting the market operate because what we know is that the market tends to operate in ways that benefits folks, right, who also have these historic privileges. Can I just, since everyone else got a thing. Sure. Yeah, just one minute. Just, this is why the moral high ground language is so pernicious. 
The minimum wage is not a moral high ground issue. A $30 minimum wage would be too high. $5 is too low. Finding the right balance there, that's not a moral issue. That's a programmatic issue. School choice. I was really in favor of school choice till I saw the studies. I'm a little less impressed by it now. That's not a moral issue. If you make that a moral issue, then I lock in. I'm more in favor of charter schools because I think the results there are much better. We over-moralize our politics. And, and, and if you use that moral high ground language, then you reduce the rationality of the whole system. I think we have time for one more question, sir. Hi, my name is Uri. Um, something that hasn't come up tonight at all is foreign policy or America's role uh, towards the rest of the world. I was wondering on each side, what's something that defines your side's approach to this issue and why that's superior to the other side? Um, I do a lot of work in foreign policy. We work very well with our Republican counterparts, probably the last place in Washington where Democrats and Republicans do see eye to eye most of the time. The big difference is this, in, in general, and, and boy, have Democrats screwed up. The Vietnam War was on us for the most part. Iraq, the second Iraq War, was on the Republicans for the most part. So I think there is a substantive difference. I think Democrats tend to require better records on human rights from those people we help than the Republicans do. I think the Republicans in general are less interested in human rights and more interested in practical, willing to leave that out of the equation. I think America always has to stand up for human rights. We are not perfect, but if you don't aspire to a higher level of achievement and humanity, you never get there. David Brooks, is that a fair characterization? That liberals are more focused on human rights and pursue it no, as such? I, you know, I was so-called neoconservative. That's what we cared about. We wanted to defeat the Soviet Union to preserve the, new, the human rights of the Soviet Union. We went into Iraq because we thought it would help for democracy around the world, and that we overstepped in that, in that case. But it was, all, it was a human rights-based, democracy- and freedom-based foreign policy that Ronald Reagan stood for. Melissa Harris-Perry, to finish this thought? You're, you're, you'll pass? No, I gave that one to, to, to Howard. Yeah. Well, g- given that Howard took it and that we're out of time, that concludes round two <laughs> of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, liberals hold the moral high ground. And now we move on to round three. Round three is made up of closing statements by each debater in turn. They will once again return to the Intelligence Square over there. First speaking, making his closing statement uh, in favor of the motion, Howard Dean, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee on the motion. Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Dean. So this has been a great debate. And I think the most important part of the debate actually is, uh, has been made by my opponents, even though I think they lose, which is, uh, they happen to make it first, which is, in fact, we are all human beings, and we are both human beings that care about each other, that can talk to each other as we have tonight, that actually listen to each other, The core core question is, which values are important? I'm going to argue, as I have before, that the core difference between liberals and conservatives is that we look forward, we have hope, we are not clinging to the past, and we are not fearful. I went to school with two African-Americans. I had never been to school with an African-American before in college. They had never been to school with a white person before. That was the year that Bobby Kennedy was killed, Martin Luther King was killed, The Chicago Convention blew up and 99 cities were burned down. If you had told us that we were going to have a black president 40 years later, we'd have told you you were crazy. 40 years later, the United States of America elected Barack Obama president. That is the great thing about America, that people do have opportunity that nobody ever thought they would have. And that's what we believe on our side of the table. Thank you, Howard Dean. The motion is liberals hold the moral high ground and here to make his closing statement against the motion and making his way to 
the Intelligence Square, David Brooks, op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Ladies and gentlemen, David Brooks. So they've made the case that, that they're, they have better, their liberal outcomes are better. That's fine. We believe conservative outcomes are better. But I'm stuck on the resolution. The resolution is not about who has better outcomes. The resolution is about liberals, a group, hold the moral high ground. And that's been the big difference in this debate. Robbie and I don't think we have the moral high ground. We think we're equal. So a, a guy, if there was ever a guy who could have held the moral high ground, it was Abraham Lincoln. He, 1865, he's just finished the Civil War to end slavery against people who wanted to preserve it. He gave a second inaugural. He could have said, woohoo, I won. He didn't do that because he knew how pernicious that claim of moral high ground would be. He said American slavery was not a Southern problem. It was an American problem. He said the scourge of the war fell on all of us equally. He said we are all, he gave us this, that we're all equal, we all sinned, and we're all coming together. The key words in that speech were all, we, one, nobody expected this. So my final plea to you is reject the idea that one party or another has a moral high ground. And the second is vote for equality that conservatives and liberals are equal, that we have liberal, equal intentions, equal dreams, maybe some equal fears. And if we start off from equality, then we can just have a better country. Thank you, David Brooks. The motion again, liberals hold the moral high ground. And here making her closing statement in support of the motion, Melissa Harris-Perry, Maya Angelou Presidential Chair at Wake Forest University. Ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Harris-Perry. Let me suggest that it does not fall on all of us equally. And the question is not about the South or the North. It is about my great-great-grandmother who was sold on a street corner in Richmond. When I think about myself as an empirical social scientist, that the work that I always do is, what the data say, but the data say, but the data say. But I actually went to seminary. I raised Unitarian Universalist because I am the daughter of a white woman of Mormon pioneer stock and an African-American man who was raised in the Jim Crow South, so I couldn't be anything but a Unitarian Universalist. (laughs) So I went to seminary because I needed an answer that empirics could not show me, and that is how my great-great-grandmother could have experienced only intergenerational chattel bondage for herself expected only intergenerational chattel bondage for her children, and yet somehow known that she was human, and that at the end of enslavement, my people ran for office. It did not fall on all of us equally. And so there is a moral high ground, and it was occupied by the people who were on the bottom. And there is a group in this country who gives those people the most voice. Vote for the motion because there is a space that says nothing about us without us. And that exists in this country on the left. Thank you, Melissa Harris-Perry. And one more time, the motion is liberals hold the moral high ground. And here to make his closing statement against the motion, Robert George, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert George.
I'm in my 33rd wonderful year of teaching at uh, Princeton University, and I've had many wonderful experiences. But the very best thing that I've done, the most fulfilling thing for me, the thing I am most grateful for, is the work I do teaching together with my friend and ideological opponent, Cornell West. Cornell and I teach courses together. We lecture together both on campus and off campus because we have different points of view, not despite the fact that we have different points of view. We do it because we learn from each other, and we've learned so much from each other about how important it is to engage each other and not to adopt an air of moral superiority that we want to share that and we want to model that for our students and for people around the country. As David said at the beginning, if you claim the moral high ground, that's a pretty good indication that you don't do it, you don't have it. And one of the things Cornell and I avoid, because we know it's not true, is the claim that one or the other of us has the moral high ground. The same is true for liberals and conservatives. Thank you, Robert George. And that concludes our closing statements, where the motion is liberals hold the moral high ground. So the votes are all in, and it goes like this. Remember, it's the team whose numbers change the most between the first and the second votes that determine our winner. On the motion, liberals hold the moral high ground before the vote. In polling the live audience, 48% agreed with the motion, 22% were against, 30% were undecided. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their first vote was 48%, their second vote... 43%. They lost 5 percentage points. The team arguing against their first vote was 22%. Their second vote, 39%. They pulled up 18 percentage points. That makes them our winner. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared Yes. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Clea Chang is chief operating officer, Leah Mathau is vice president of programming, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Agtmail. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.